Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. We're back. <laughs> you thought we were gone, but we are back. Hello, boys. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> Which, let's be fair, there was an episode of Doctor Who we just watched that I yeah. swear to God, that was how he killed the aliens. <laughs> Yeah, it just, it felt very... Um, was it from Gallifrey or something? It's like, this oh, one's yeah. from Gallifrey. And then he, like, started to regenerate and, like, yep. shot all his, like, gold energy up at the Dalek ship. It was like... Pew! Yeah, he was just, it was it was reverse Independence Day because yeah. it was it was shooting the beam up into the ship instead, instead of, of coming yeah. out of it, yeah. Yeah, so that was a niche market if you like Doctor Who. Also, sorry, spoilers. And Independence Day. And Independence Day. And uh, if you listen to us, you probably have seen both. <laughs> Decent chance. Yeah. Decent chance. Uh, or maybe, maybe you're just a huge Randy Quaid fan. and As so many people are. <laughs> he just seems to be such a likable human There being. must be a few of them. I mean, he's fucking funny when he's... Like, think of, like, Christmas Vacation yeah. and, like... Uh, Independence Day, but it sounds like he's not a very good person. <laughs> uh, you know what? I've never met him. I'm not going to judge, but reports do seem to indicate that perhaps there is a reason he does not work as much as maybe a Quaid named Dennis. Yes, yes. Odd that he also worked with Chevy Chase all the time, who also apparently is not easy to work with. Yeah, maybe they learned it from each other. Yeah, maybe they both like rubbed off their dick energy. What? <laughs> whoa, whoa, that's maybe they wrong. rubbed Rub off each other's <laughs> dick energy. <laughs> I didn't even mean to be dirty, and it just came out that way. <laughs> You know, so I mean, it's possible the, they did. Maybe they did. I mean, it was the like seventies. They're doing a lot of cocaine and stuff. I mean, like, well, and if they didn't get along with anyone else, yeah, they, it's like the Dutch rudder from like. Anyway, I'm done. Okay, hi everybody. We've been gone for a while. <laughs> trying to get a lot of this out of the way right up front. There's a moment in <laughs> so since the last time you you heard us, I've opened my production of Million Dollar Quartet, and there is a line in it where uh, Sam Phillips who is the guy who ran Sun Records and and discovered Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and a whole bunch of those rock and roll guys, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins. Um, but he's got a line where what he says is, um, uh, how do you like that? Before they're stars, you're beating them off like flies. And the next thing you know, and backstage every day, it's, <laughs> how do you beat off a fly? How are you beating off a fly? Who <laughs> you? <laughs> wow, we are in rare spirits today. Well, figure we're we're coming back after It's been a month. It's been 3 weeks since the last since time I, you were yeah. on. Yeah, we've had a missed week and two poo breaks. Um 
<laughs> so the it's poop, the poop breaks are while I was in San Diego yeah. for my little sister's wedding. Yay! Congrats, Ashley. And so, Jeff. so we got to come back strong. Yeah. So here we are uh, in our full uh, innuendo glory. Actually, I think we're we're a little light on the innuendo. <laughs> so far, it's just, just like the glory. <laughs> glory hole. Yeah. That's it. Just <laughs> it's just full glory hole, <laughs> right up front. <laughs> Uh, so, welcome or welcome back, uh, campers. Thanks for joining us and um, either for the first time or returning or I don't know, whatever your story is. Thanks for being here. Hi. It's always nice to chat Howdy. with you. I had a dream last night about the podcast. Oh, yeah? I had a dream that we were doing the podcast and like we were like, oh, is this worth it anymore? Is it worth it anymore? Is it worth? And then fucking, okay, this... I guess this is kind of a movie plot, but uh, Tom Hanks shows up and wants to buy our podcast. And I'm like, okay, so it's just uh, that thing you do, but for a podcast. Great. Now that I'm saying it out loud, uh, that's what it sounds like. But uh, yeah, Tom Hanks was like, oh, I love your podcast. Like, uh, I'm going to put a $800,000 value on it or something like that. And then he was like, and now it'll be, you know, streamed, blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. And I was like... Oh my god! It was it was good. So, um, Tom Hanks, um, if you're listening, um, and we know you are, you just send us an email and we'll send you our address and you can show up with that check. That's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't even have to show up in person with a check. Um, you know, you know the email address. Uh, it's fifty fifty arts production at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Hanks, shoot us an email and I'll just I'll send you our Venmo or you anyone can, who wants to send us money. Um, that that goes for anyone who wants to send us money. You can also go to our website campfireclassicspodcast.com and just buy us a coffee we got a little link right there you can buy us a coffee Mm. for five dollars or five hundred thousand dollars whatever sounds more your speed (laughs) i i that so i had to share that because i woke up and i was like ooh, and i bet we're recording today so like maybe maybe the stars shall align (laughs) yeah but uh, yeah, we're, we're here and, uh, we're ready to do what we do. So let's get into what we do. Yeah. Uh, for faithful listeners, you'll already know that this is a literary comedy podcast for newcomers. And if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. What we do is we cold read short stories that we have pulled out of the public domain and, uh, you get to listen as we fuck it up. <laughs> Well, we try not to fuck it up. It's just, you know, things happen. Things happen. As you can tell from the intro to this podcast, things happen. Life is what happens when you're making other plans. And typically, when we record this, a lot of plans don't happen. (laughs) Our plan is to read the story, and usually we get through it. Yep. But a lot of things happen along the way. I don't think we've ever fit. Nope, I lied. We once failed to reach the end of a story. That was like episode three. Yeah. Because you didn't realize it was a two-parter. Oh, no, 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 oh. no. Um, so that's how oh, we did. Yes. We did reach the, the end Charlotte of. The Gilman Perkins one or whatever. The, no. It was, it was um, Susan Glaspell. Susan Glaspell. That's what we were reading was, a yeah. Susan Glaspell story and it would have been episode three or four. It was, it was in it, that first. It was in that first batch that, that first we were reading. Chunk. 
Yeah. Uh, and we were reading um, A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell, which is a fantastic story. And perhaps we'll get around to reading it here at some point. We've certainly taken on some more heavy stories kind of like that since then. But uh, we were still early on trying to figure out what this was, reading it and going, it's really hard to make this funny. Well, it's hard to make it funny. And the way it was written, because it was turned into a play, which mm-hmm. is how we knew of the story. Yeah, it's the the play Trifles. Yeah. And we'd read for it you in theater history our geeks. graduate school uh, theater history class. Um, but it read a lot like a play. So it was very hard and it was, a, I think it was the fifth one we were going to record. So we'd recorded like five, five episodes in like within a 24 hour time span. And it was just, it was too dialogue heavy and it felt like a play, not like a story. Yeah. It was hard to read out loud. It would very much be easy to read like sitting and, you know, figuring it out as you go. But I was like, yeah. who's talking? What's happening? So we just, we stopped. Yep. <laughs> we were but like, other than that. I think we have a we have a 100% success rate. There was one other story um, when Craig was co-hosting that we started reading and we got um, like two paragraphs in and went, huh, this isn't going to stop being super racist, is it? Oh, All right. Yeah, yeah. New story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was the one that I gave you that was written in like half dialect. Yes. And we found another... We found, we a, found translation a translation of, of it. it. Yeah. So, but we get through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so we get through it. Long story short. Yeah. <laughs> that might all get cut. Who we knows? push through. We do persevere. We are here uh, for you. So this week, you get to hear Heather struggle her way through a short story that she has never, ever seen before. But before she tries to read that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you a few fun facts about this week's author. So this week, we have an author who I'm fairly certain is new to us. I don't recognize her name anyway. Her. Her name is Anna Catherine Green. Oh, yeah, I don't recognize that. Born in Brooklyn in 1846, she is one of the first professional writers of detective fiction in America. Yes! Earning her the moniker, the mother of the detective novel. Oh, well, shit. How have we missed this lady? Don't know. Uh, So initially, she wanted to write romantic verse, and she even contacted Ralph Waldo Emerson to be a mentor of sorts, but her poetry sucked. (laughs) She was not good with the rhymes. (laughs) Um, And maybe sucked isn't fair, but it certainly failed to gain her any ground or notoriety. It just wasn't her genre. It wasn't populous. uh... So in 1878, she um, she uh, published, wrote and published her first and what has become her best known novel, The Leavenworth Case, oh. which was praised by many of her contemporaries, including Wilkie Collins, and became the hit of the year. I think that's a play? Yes, it is. Okay. I was like, I feel like I have... Not auditioned for it, but I've seen auditions for it. It so. is it is a play, and I'm going to touch on that briefly oh, in a minute. Oh, look at me being all yep. smart. <laughs> uh, 
so it became the smash hit of the year. Bear in mind, Sherlock Holmes would not first appear until 1887, almost a decade later. So she is super ahead of the curve Mic here. drop. Ladies always did it first. <laughs> uh, furthermore, Anna's main detective character was a detective named Ebenezer Grice of the New York Metropolitan Police Force, but in at least three novels that he stars in, his primary assistant is a nosy society spinster named Amelia Butterworth, a clear forerunner of Miss Marple. <laughs> Amelia Butterworth. What a good name. She sounds exactly like what you described her as. Yep. A society spinster, which just means a single lady. Single lady. With yep. money. Yeah. Anna Catherine Green's stories were so well researched from a legal and procedural standpoint that the Yale School of Law used her work as textbook quality examples of how to conduct investigations and why circumstantial evidence is so problematic. Holy shit. All right, then my dad's really going to like this one. Like, lawyer dad. Yeah, All right. <laughs> probably. Also, maybe he studied her. The Pennsylvania State Senate argued over whether it was even possible for a woman to write a book of this quality. That sounds like something <laughs> in, the, in a Senate not, uh, currently would be arguing Sounds like something over, going on honest, in Florida right I mean, now. It sounds like Florida or Tennessee or Texas right now. I mean, like, fuck. <laughs> like... Oh, how could a woman know such things of our laws? Well, I mean, I guess this was like 80 years before women had the vote. Yes. Speaking of. Uh, wow, um, I'm way ahead of the game. Yeah, you're, you're, you're like, like on it. I've, I've got my notes right here. I'm not even wearing no, my I glasses. Can't you can't see the reflection I, I or anything. I can't see it. No. Um, so oddly, for all, she succeeded in a field that was dominated by men and showed incredibly progressive tendencies in her writing and personal life. She did not support the feminist movement of her time and did not support the movement for women's suffrage. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, no, nah, I'm good over here just writing. I don't need uh, any responsibilities. I'm good. She's like, I'm cool over here. Yep. Uh, she did marry. Okay. I was going to ask if she married. Uh, he was an actor and stove designer. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a fucking like term for an actor now. An actor and influencer. <laughs> an actor and stove designer. <laughs> That's so fucking specific. Stove designer. Mm -hmm. like, actor and cater waiter. <laughs> yeah, except stove, stove designer. designer. So really, it's more like actor and heating unit repairman. Or like, yeah, I was like woodworker. Actor I mean, and plumber. She was married to Nick Offerman? Yes. <laughs> actor and woodworker. Yep. So she married Nick Offerman. Um, uh, he went out on tour in the stage version of Green's The Leavenworth Case. Okay. He he toured in the that original production. Wow, um, look at him benefiting off his wife. He, oh, very much. <laughs> um, because once that closed, his theater career disintegrated. <laughs> Back to the stove. And in 1897, he became a furniture maker. Okay, so he's Aiden from Sex and the City. <laughs> Okay. Or still Ron Swanson. He's just, he's just, oh yeah, 
Yeah, he's Ron yeah. Swanson. He makes his chairs. Uh, and uh, Green collaborated with him on some of his furniture designs. Wow, she uh, seemed to be wearing the pants in that household for someone who didn't believe in women's equality. <laughs> she didn't need the right to vote. She ran the household as it was. That's true. <laughs> she got everything She's she like, wanted. I'm good. I found me a man. I found me an actor who'll do what I tell I got, him to I got go. me a pretty boy who'll do whatever the fuck I want him to. <laughs> he knows his place. He's like, she's like, I know I'm the sugar mama <laughs> and I will do what needs doing. <laughs> I, I am the meal ticket. He is not going to fuck around. And now you're going to design me a rocking chair. Um, together they had one daughter and two sons. Okay. She became a best-selling author, eventually publishing 37 books over 40 years. Wow. And she died on April 11th, 1935 in Buffalo, New York at the age of 88. Oh, wow. That's old. Her husband uh, died a year later. Also, that's a lot of books for 40 years. Like, because you had to write everything by hand by the, uh, like back then. Everything yeah, she was, was averaging hand. almost a book a, a year. A year, and she was writing them by hand. Like, and some of those books were short story collections. Yeah. Um, but, but still, yeah. they were full books. But like, it, yeah, like, she... 37 books over the 40 years that she was active. That's crazy. And yeah. she had three kids and she was, you know, supporting her, her man and designing furniture and shit. Yeah. So good good for her. Uh, so today, Heather, you will be reading her short story from 1895 entitled Midnight in the Beauchamp Row. Ooh, scandalous. Let's start this fire. Ooh, it's warm and toasty. Midnight at the Beauchamp Row. Beauchamp? Beauchamp. Bo- <laughs> it's French. I think it's Beauchamp. Be- Shut up. It's Beauchamp, right? Be a champ. Be, Be a champ row. Beauchamp. <laughs> I think it's Beauchamp. Beauchamp. Midnight in the Beauchamp Row by Anna Catherine Green. It was the last house in Beauchamp Row and it stood several rods away from... <laughs> rods? <laughs> what? Wow. Somebody's confident if they're using that as a unit of measurement. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Where'd you get your rod from, sir? <laughs> and how standard is that? Because they tend to change. Yeah. Is rod a measurement of the time? <laughs> I didn't even finish the first sentence, and so we've made a sexual reference, and we're looking something up. So here we go. Uh, so it stood several rods away from its nearest neighbor. That has to... Rods. One rod is five and a half yards. Holy shit. (laughs) I hope no one on the street had a rod like that. Good lord. That's unnecessary. (laughs) That's painful. Why? I've never even heard that measurement. I'm glad we got rid of that one. (laughs) That's, That's kind of odd. Like, a rod. Maybe that's how they built houses, to keep them, like... Oh, God, we're looking at, like, 13th century perches where variously recorded, blah, 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 Henry VIII, oh, fuck, Yada, yada, Henry VIII made, oh, it's probably Henry VIII's rod, or what he liked to tell people was his rod. That's what it was, definitely. The man that married how many women? Six wives. A chain, a unit, a furlong, a rod. Oh, I've heard furlong before. I've heard that in, like, British TV. Um, there are 40 rods in a furlong and eight <laughs> furlongs in a mile. Fuck that. 
I'm going to go for a run tomorrow and run some furlongs for so you. There are 320 rods to one statute mile. Tomorrow when I go for my run, I'm going to put in the Nike run app that I'd like to go for 450 rods. <laughs> it's going to be like, um, you're drunk, go home. And I'll be like, okay, I didn't want to run anyway. I I measure running. everything in rods and stone. <laughs> Rods and stones. Stones and rod. (laughs) Okay, back to this story that is probably really great. We're going to read it. Now let's go. A stone is like 20 pounds, right? uh, They do still use that in, like... Europe and stuff. Right. But I'm just thinking that if the rod is five and a half yards, then a 20 pound stone makes sense. I have no idea. Because if the rod is five and a half yards, then a 20 pound stone. I'm I'm looking at you and I'm giving you the look of oh no. Moving right along. It was the last house in Beauchamp Row, and it stood several rods away from its nearest neighbor. It was a pretty house in the daytime, but owing to its deep sloping roof and soft beta and small beta monded that's that sounds right. Sloping roof, Betty, Betty Amondided. Do you need help? <laughs> yeah. Bediamonded. Bediamonded! <laughs> I love when I make things harder than they are. That's Betty Amondided. Betty Damondadad. <laughs> Bediamond. <laughs> Bediamonded. Bediamonded, which is also a funny word to well, use. Which is stupid. <laughs> Just say diamond shaped. It was a pretty house in the daytime, but owing to its deep sloping roof and small bediamonded windows, it had a lonesome look at night, notwithstanding the crimson hall light which shone through the leaves of its vine-covered doorway. Ned Shivers lived in it with his six months married bride, and as he was both a busy fellow and a gay one, there were many evenings when pretty Letty Shivers sat alone until near midnight. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Well, someone's at the gay bar. He's examining the rods (laughs) and stones. He's examining the rods and stones that make him so happy. All right. She was of an uncomplaining spirit, however, and said little, though there were times when both the day and evening seemed very long and married life not altogether the paradise she had expected. On this evening, a memorable evening for her, the 24th of December, 1894, Christmas Eve, she had expected her husband to remain with her. For it was not only Christmas Eve, but the night when, as manager of a large manufacturing concern, he brought up from New York the money which, with which to pay off the men on the next working day. And he never left her when there was an unusual amount of money in the house. Yeah, because, you know, bitches be shopping. Bitch, bitches be on Amazon like, oh, that looks good. <laughs> That's what I do all the time. But from the first glimpse she had of him coming up the road, she knew she was to be disappointed in this hope, and indignant, alarmed, almost at the prospect of a lonesome evening under these circumstances, she ran hastily down to the gate to meet him, crying. Oh, no. Starting right off the bat with a guilt trip. Wow, she no. Wow, he must have looked real sad. Ned, you look so troubled. I know you have only come home for a hurried supper, but you cannot leave me tonight. Tenny, their only maid, has gone for a holiday, and I never can stay in this house alone with all that. 
She pointed to the small bag he carried, which, as she knew, was filled to the bursting with banknotes. He certainly looked troubled. It is hard to resist the entreaty in a young bride's uplifted face. Yeah, it is. Oh, God. But this time he could not help himself, and he said, I'm dreadful sorry, but I must ride over to Fairbanks tonight. Mr. Pearson has given me an imperative order to conclude a matter of business there, and it's very important that it should be done. I should lose my position if I neglected the matter, and no one but Hasbrock and Suffren knows that we keep the money in the house. I have always given out that I entrusted it to Hale safe overnight. Okay, first of all, that was a lot of explanation. We we also got some important details yes, in that there are only two people who know who that know the money's there, and everyone else thinks it's in Hale's safe. I don't know who the fuck Hale is, but these two people, I have a feeling, are going to be trouble. <laughs> Presumably Hale also knows it's not in his safe. <laughs> but I cannot stand it, she persisted. You have never left me on these nights. That is why I let Tenny go. I will spend the evening at the Larches, or, or better still, call in Mr. and Mrs. Talcott to keep me company. But her husband did not approve of her going out or having company. Her husband's a dick. <laughs> Wait a second. You're leaving her home alone and telling her what she's not allowed to do? Nah. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of her gay husband. Dump right his now. ass. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Like, it's Christmas Eve and your crying wife just wants to have friends over and you're like, nah. But you can sit here and watch my money. The larches were too far away, and as for Mr. and Mrs. Talcott, they were meddlesome people whom he had never liked. Besides, Mrs. Talcott was delicate, and the night threatened storm. She was delicate. She is just a She'll get blown away by the winds. Delicate flower. It seemed hard to subject her to this ordeal, and he showed that he thought so by his manner, but... As circumstances were, she would have to stay alone, and he only hoped she would be brave and go to bed like a good girl and think nothing about the money which he would take care to put away in the very in a very safe place. Wow, I really hate this guy. <laughs> He's a little condescending. He's a little bit of a bitch. What's his name again? Ned? Ned Chivers or something? Ned Chivers? Chiver. Ned Chivers, I think is how I pronounced it. Yeah, what a dick. Be a good girl and go to bed. Hardly hope. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe Santa Claus will come tonight. <laughs> he won't be the only one. Wink. <laughs> or, said he, kissing her downcast face, perhaps you would rather hide it yourself. Women always have curious ideas about such things. Yes, let me hide it, she murmured. The money, I mean, not the bag. <laughs> Everyone knows the bag. I should never dare to leave it in that. Oh, see, she's smart. Look at this. Yeah. She's smarter than him. She's cooler than him. I hope she gets the hell out of Dodge. And begging him to unlock it, she began to empty it with a feverish haste that rather alarmed him, for he surveyed her anxiously and shook his head as if he dreaded the effects of this excitement upon her. <laughs> Oh, how dare she have something to be happy about. 
But as he saw no way of averting it, he confined himself to using such soothing words as were at his command, and then, humoring her weakness, helped her to arrange the bills in the place she had chosen, and restuffing the bag with old receipts till it acquired its former dimensions, he put a few bills on top to make the whole look natural, and, laughing at her white face, relocked the bag and put the key back in his pocket. There, dear, a notable scheme, and one that should relieve your mind entirely, he cried. If anyone should attempt burglary in my absence and should succeed in getting into the house as safely locked as this will be when I leave it, then trust to their being satisfied when they see this booty, which I shall hide where I always hide it in the cupboard over my desk. I think the burglars will be satisfied when they see your wife's booty. (laughs) Yeah, not 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 to talk about that. There's going to be people breaking into your house with your sweet, innocent wife sleeping alone because you can't stay. Yeah, home. this whole thing seems it's, like it seems like he's setting something up. Well, they both seem to know too much. Yeah. And when will you be back? She murmured, trembling in spite of herself at these preparations. By one o'clock, if possible. Certainly by two. And our neighbors will go to bed at ten, she murmured. But the words were low, and she was glad he did not hear them, for it was his duty to obey the orders he had received. Then it would be her duty to meet the position in which it left her as bravely as she could. At supper she was so natural that his face rapidly brightened, and it was with quite an air of cheerfulness that he rose at last to lock up the house and make such preparations as were necessary for his dismal ride over the mountains to Fairbanks. She had the supper dishes to wash up in Tenny's absence, and as she was a busy little housewife, she found herself singing a snatch of a song. (laughs) Wow, you can sing with that? That's control. Or maybe she's singing a WAP. <laughs> Wet ass. <laughs> and that's already this. more of that song than I know. Oh, I, I edited it myself, so you didn't have to. This is a fairly filthy episode. I don't think there's much that's going to get edited. <laughs> All right. So she's singing her snatch song. All right. She found herself singing a snatch of song as she passed back and forth from dining room to kitchen. He heard it, too, and smiled to himself as he bolted the windows on the ground floor and examined the locks of the three lower doors. And when he finally came into the kitchen with his great coat on to give her a final kiss, he had but one parting injunction to urge, and that was that she should lock the front door after him and then forget the whole matter till she heard his double knock at midnight. Why do they have so many locks on their house? To plan for this Christmas. <laughs> like, what is going on in this house? Like, this is back in the day when, like, people did not lock their houses, you know? Well, I mean, apparently they got shit worth stealing. I mean, it sounds like every couple of weeks he brings back a, a fuck lot ton of, money, of cash. Because he's like a manager, but like you think they have like a safe or something, but like <laughs> that's a lot of locks on their house. Yeah, and he doesn't even have a key to his own house. This well, see, this if he, seems sketchy because now he's saying, "Listen for the double knock," uh-huh. which means he's going to send somebody else. 
Oh, like, something shady is actually we we're getting way too much information yeah. set up for there not to be some sort of some twist um, here. Shenanigans. 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 <laughs> All right. So she's she's gonna hear the double knock at midnight, even though he said he probably wouldn't be home till two. So good. She smiled and held up her ingenuous face. Be careful of yourself, she murmured. I hate this dark ride for you and on such a night too. And she ran with him to the door to look out. It is certainly very dark, he responded, but I'm to have one of Brown's safest horses. Do not worry about me. I shall do well enough, and so will you too. Or you are not the plucky little woman I have always thought you. She laughed. <laughs> I feel like her laugh was this. <laughs> it's like one of those forced laughs. But there was a choking sound in her voice. Yep. <laughs> that made him look at her again. But at sight of his anxiety, she recovered herself and pointed to the clouds, saying earnestly, It is going to snow. Be careful as you ride to the gorge, Ned. It is very deceptive there in a snowstorm. But he vowed that it would not snow before morning, and giving her one final embrace, he dashed down the path toward Brown's livery stable. Oh, what's the matter with me, she murmured to herself as his steps died out in the distance. I never knew I was such a coward. And she paused for a moment, looking up and down the road, as if in despite of her husband's command, she had the desperate idea of running away to some neighbor. But she was too loyal for that, and smothering a sigh, she retreated into the house. As she did so, the first flakes fell of the storm that was not to have come till morning. <laughs> hey, even weathermen can't predict the weather. Yeah. It took her an hour to get her kitchen in order, and nine o'clock struck before she was ready to sit down. She had been so busy, she had not noticed how the wind had increased or how rapidly the snow was falling. But when she went to the front door for another glance up and down the road, she started back, appalled at the fierceness of the gale and at the great pile of snow that had already accumulated on the doorstep. Too delicate to breast such a wind, she saw herself robbed of her last hope of any companionship, and sighing heavily, she locked and bolted the door for the night and went back into the little sitting room where a great fire was burning. Here she sat down and determined, now that she must pass the evening alone, to do it as cheerfully as possible, and so began to sew. Sure. I mean, I find sewing very calming. And she can't turn on Netflix or anything. No. God. Modern conveniences make life so much easier. Mm -hmm. Like she's sitting there with a fire. There's a, like, snowstorms. They got lots of money in the house. It's Christmas Eve. She's alone. She's like, I'm going to cross-stitch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, In genuinely, I think of the number of times that I've been um, disconcerted, like, to the point of feeling kind of nervous. Like, by fear. Silence. By um By silence, by the dark, by being alone, um, and it's, like, windy outside. Yeah. Or, um, or there... Like there are people walking around outside and I'm like, I don't know these people. It makes me uncomfortable or whatever. Yeah. The ability to turn on Netflix, to turn on a podcast, to turn on to like something 
something that makes me feel like I have company yeah. is incredible. Or just call like, somebody. Or just even call just, somebody. Even, even like the ability to call somebody. They didn't have that. Yeah. But yeah. And but for me, you know that calling well, someone I, is never an option. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but in general. You but always yeah, the, have the, the ability to reach someone yeah, or the, have sound. The the ability to whether for real or make believe, um, call up some kind of company to ease those feelings is something that I feel like we really do take for granted. Yeah. And we're, what, 1894 here, and this woman is alone and has no way of getting company. In the dark. <laughs> oh, what a Christmas Eve, she thought. And a picture of other homes rose before her eyes. Homes in which husbands sat by their wives and brothers by sisters. And a great wave of regret poured over her and a longing for something. She hardly dared say what, lest her unhappiness should acquire a sting that would leave traces beyond the passing moment. The room in which she sat was the only one on the ground floor except the dining room and kitchen. It therefore was used both as parlor and sitting room, and held not only her piano, but her husband's desk. All right, so they got some money. Yeah. I mean, clearly, they have a, they have a servant. Um... Communicating with it was the tiny dining room. Between the two, however, was an entry leading to a side entrance. A lamp was in this entry, and she had left it burning, as well as one in the kitchen, that the house might look cheerful and as if all the family were at home. She was looking towards the entry and wondering whether it was the mist made by her tears that made it look so dismally dark to her when there came a faint sound from the door at its further end. Uh-oh. Knowing that her husband must have taken peculiar pains with the fastenings of the door, as it was the one towards the woods and therefore most accessible to wayfarers, she sat where she was, with all her facilities strained to listen. But no further sound came from that direction, and after a few minutes of silent terror, she was allowing herself to believe that she had been deceived by her fears, when she suddenly heard the same sound at the kitchen door, followed by a muffled knock. Strangers in the night. It's creepy. Exchanging glance. Frightened now in good earnest, but still alive to the fact that the intruder was as likely to be a friend as a foe, she stepped to the door, and with her hand on the lock stooped and asked boldly enough, who was there? But she received no answer, and more affectioned by this unexplained silence than by the knock she had heard, she recoiled farther and farther till not only the width of the kitchen, but the dining room also lay between her and the scene of her alarm, when to her utter confusion, the noise shifted again to the side of the house, and the door she thought so securely fastened swung violently open as if blown in by a fierce gust, and she saw, precipitating into the entry, the burly figure of a man covered with snow and shaking with the violence of the storm that seemed at once to fill the house. I hate this. 
Her first thought was that it was her husband come back, but before she could clear her eyes from the cloud of snow which had entered with him, he had thrown off his outer covering and she found herself face to face with a man in whose powerful frame and cynical visage she saw little to comfort her and much to surprise and alarm. Ugh! (laughs) Was his coarse and rather familiar greeting. Is it Charlie Brown? I guess so. Ugh! (laughs) Good grief. A hard night, missus. I guess this guy's British, so this just helps us keep him straight. Great. A hard night, missus. Enough to drive any man indoors. Pardon the liberty, but I couldn't wait for you to lift the latch. The wind drove me right in. Was... Was... Was not the door locked? She feebly asked, thinking he must have staved it in with his foot that looked only too well fitted for such a task. Not much, he chuckled. I suppose you're too hospitable for that. And his eyes passed from her face to the comfortable firelight shining through the sitting room. Is is it refuge you want? She demanded, suppressing as much as possible all signs of fear. Sure, missus, what else? A man can't live in a gale like that, especially after a tramp of 20 miles or more. Shall I shut the door for you, he asked, with a mixture of bravado and good nature that frightened her more and more. I will shut it, she replied, with a half notion of escaping this sinister stranger by a flight through the night. But one glance into the swirling snowstorm deterred her, and making the best of the alarming situation, she closed the door, but did not lock it, being more afraid now of what was inside the house than of anything left to threaten her from without. The man, whose clothes were dripping with water, watched her with a cynical smile and then, without any invitation, entered the dining room, crossed it, and moved toward the kitchen fire. Ugh! Ugh! But it's warm here! He cried, his nostrils dilating with an animal-like enjoyment that in itself was repugnant to her womanly delicacy. (laughs) Yeah, you know how manly stuff is gross. Yeah. He farted too. <laughs> Boys are icky. Boys are gross. Do you know, Mrs. I shall have to stay here tonight. Can't go out in that gale again. Not such a fool. Then, with a sly look at her trembling form and white face, he insinu- insinuatingly added, All alone, Mrs. The suddenness with which this was put together with the leer that accompanied it, made her start. Alone? Yes, but should she acknowledge it? Would it not be better to say her husband was upstairs? The man evidently saw the struggle going on in her mind, for he chuckled to himself and called out quite boldly, Never mind, missus, it's all right. Just give me a bit of cold meat and a cup of tea or something, and we'll be very comfortable together. You're a slender slip of a woman to be mine in a house like this. I'll keep you company if you don't mind, lestwise, until the storm lets up a bit, which ain't likely for some hours to me. Rough night, missus. Rough night. I expect my husband home at any time, she hastily said, and thinking she saw a change in the man's countenance as this she was... And thinking she saw a change in the man's countenance at this, she put on 
quite an air of sudden satisfaction and bounded towards the front of the house. There, I think I hear him now, she cried out. Her motive was to gain time and, if possible, to obtain the opportunity of shifting the money from the place where she had put it to another. Why would she move it? I thought it's already hiding. I thought it's hiding. Why would you move it in front of this guy? Her motive was to gain time and, if possible, to obtain the opportunity of shifting the money from the place where she had first put it to another and safer one. I, I want to be able, she thought, of uh, swearing that I have no money with me in the house. If I can only get it into my apron, I will drop it outside the door into the snowbank. It will be as safe there as in the bank it came from. And dashing into the sitting room, she made a feign of dragging down a shawl from a screen while she secretly filled her skirt with the bills which had been put between some old pamphlets on the bookshelf. So she's going to go dump the money outside, outside the house the so that house. so that she can honestly say no I don't have any money here because she's, she's afraid a, of lying. She's a good 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 dutiful woman. Jeebus creebus. Yeah, this is this is what we call um this is what happens after years and years of abuse. Told, if you lie you go to hell. That's some bullshit right there. She could hear the man grumbling in the kitchen, but he did not follow her front. <laughs> he didn't follow her front, just her back? <laughs> yeah, uh, he was just watching her butt as she walked around the I house. I mean, he's an ass man. We've already established that she's got a lot of booty. She's got a lot of booty. Booty, booty, booty. And people like to look at the booty. Yep. Apparently her booty did please the intruder. Yeah. But he did not follow her front, and taking advantage of the moment's respite from his none-too-encouraging presence, she unbarred the door and cheerfully called out her husband's name. The ruse was successful. She was enabled to fling the notes where the falling flakes would soon cover them from sight, and feeling more courageous now that the money was out of the house, she went slowly back, saying she had made a mistake and that it was the wind that she had heard. The man gave a gruff but knowing guffaw and then resumed his watch over her, following her steps as she proceeded to set him out a meal, with a persistency that reminded her of a tiger just on the point of springing. But the inviting look of the viands with which she was rapidly setting the table soon distracted his attention, and allowing himself one grunt of satisfaction, he drew up a chair and set himself down to what to him was evidently a most savory respite. No beer? No ale? I, the, for some reason, this guy, to me, it's, it's like the hound. This guy's like the hound. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He's kind of a big guy, kind of scary looking, and he really wants food and beer, but he's probably, like, not actually going to hurt you. Unless... What I'm actually reminded of is Biff in Back to the Future. <laughs> I get your car towed all the way to your house, and all you have for me is light beer. Come on, McFly. <laughs> no beer, no ale, nothing of that sort, eh? Don't keep a bar, he growled as his teeth closed on a huge hunk of bread. She shook her head, wishing she had a little cold poison bottled up in a tight-looking jug. Well, that'd deal with the problem. That's fucked up. I love that she just jumped to, like, killing him. Not <laughs> well, all poison kills. It might be, it's like cold poison, like cold medicine. It's, they used to say poison, like, was... Oh, like, no, I'm, I'm guessing she, cold 
poison, oh. but it, like poison could also just make you poop a lot. <laughs> She's just gonna give him a whole shit ton of saline solution. Yeah, and give him the shits like yeah. he, like in uh, uh, Wedding Crashers. Yeah. <laughs> or is it? I think they do that in Three Ninjas too. If I remember that well, movie correctly. In fairness, it's been a long time since I saw Three Ninjas, so there's a pop culture reference that I can only half make. <laughs> Nothing but tea, she smiled, astonished at her own ease of manner in the presence of this alarming guest. Then let's have that, he grumbled, taking the bowl she handed him with an odd look that made her glad to retreat to the other side of the room. Just listen to the howling wind, he went on between the huge mouthfuls of bread and cheese with which he was gorging himself. But we're very comfortable, we too. We don't mind the storm, do we? This guy's very, very making himself at home. Yeah. Shocked by his familiarity and still more moved by the look of mingled inquiry and curiosity with which his eyes now began to wander over the walls and cupboards, she took an anxious step towards the side of the house looking toward the neighbors and lifted one of the shades, which had all been religiously pulled down. She looked out. A swirl of snowflakes alone confronted her. She could neither see her neighbors, nor could she be seen by them. A shout from her to them would not be heard. She was, a com she was as completely isolated as if the house stood in the center of a desolate western plain. I have no trust but in God, she murmured as she came from the window, and nerved to meet her fate, she crossed to the kitchen. It was now half past ten. Two hours and a half must elapse before her husband could possibly arrive. She set her teeth at the thought and walked resolutely into the room. Are you done? She asked. Yes, I am, ma'am, he leered. Do you want me to wash the dishes? I can and I will. And he actually carried his plate and cup to the sink where he turned the water upon them with a loud guffaw. If only his fancy would take him into the pantry, she thought. I could shut and lock the door upon him and hold him prisoner till Ned gets back. Yeah, yeah. lock him in the cupboard. She's having her thoughts. She's yep. like, okay, how do I, how do I trap this guy? I don't have poison, but maybe if he goes in there. But his fancy ended its flight at the sink, and before her hopes had fully subsided, he was standing on the threshold of the sitting room door. It's pretty here, he exclaimed, allowing his eye to rove again over every hiding place within sight. I wonder now. He stopped. His glance had fallen on the cupboard over the husband's desk. Well, she asked, anxious to break the thread of his thought, which was only too plainly mirrored in his eager countenance. He started, dropped his eyes, and turning, looking at her with a momentary fierceness. But, as she did not let her own glance quail, but continued to look at him with what she meant for a smile on her pale lips, he subdued this onward manifestation of passion and chuckled to hide his embarrassment, began backing into the entry, leering in evident enjoyment of the fears he caused with what she felt was a most horrible smile. Ew! He's just, he's here creeping. He's just creeping. That's all he's doing so far he's is just, just creeping. Ew, and he knows he's creeping. Yeah. Like, he's not one of those guys that kind of creeps you out, but, like, is actually, like, 
has no idea. He thinks he's, you know, he's just kind of a big guy and is odd. He knows he's making her uncomfortable. Yeah. Once in the hall, he hesitated, however, for a long time. Then he slowly went toward the garment he had dropped on entering and stooping, drew from underneath its folds a wicked-looking stick. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Giving a kick to the coat, which sent it into a remote corner, he bestowed upon her another smile, and still carrying the stick, went slowly and reluctantly away into the kitchen. What? What is about to happen? Why are you bringing a stick into the kitchen? I don't know. (laughs) I guess we're going to find out. Like, I've jumped past... Um, pulling a stick out of your coat being a penis joke yeah. straight to this is just weird and like, creepy. Like, what is this guy? Why are you now dragging a, a stick into the now kitchen? all of a sudden he's like Bill Sykes with his fucking stick and like Nancy does not end up well in that show. So. No, but also he's not walking towards her. No, he's he going away the into the kitchen. Did he? Oh, maybe there's someone in the kitchen. Maybe he saw someone in the kitchen. Maybe there's someone hiding. He's going to go beat him. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck's about to happen, but this is weird. Oh, God Almighty, help me, was her prayer. There was nothing for her to do now but endure. So throwing herself into a chair, she tried to calm the beating of her heart and summon up courage for the struggle which she felt was before her. That he had come to rob and only waited to take her off her guard, she now felt certain, and rapidly running over in her mind all the expedients of self-defense possible to one in her situation, she suddenly remembered the pistol which Ned kept in his desk. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, it is America. America. Oh, why had she not thought of this before? Why had she let herself grow mad with terror when here, within reach of her hand, lay such a means of self-defense? With a feeling of joy, she had always hated pistols before and scolded Ned when he brought one home, she started to her feet and slid her hand into the drawer, but it came back empty. Ned had taken the weapon away with him. Ah... It's supposed to be for a home defense, you dick. Yeah, where's Ned going? Yeah. <laughs> Why'd he go off with a gun? Um, he took it, my guess, he took it with him because he knew people were coming. Yeah. I oh, I don't know. For a moment, a surge of the bitterest feeling she had ever experienced passed over her. When she called reason to her aid and was obliged to acknowledge that the act was but natural and that from his standpoint, he was much more likely to need it than herself. But the disappointment coming so soon after hope unnerved her and she banked back in her chair, giving herself up for lost. How long she sat there with her eyes on the door through which she momentarily expected her assailant to reappear, she never knew. She was conscious only of a sort of apathy that made movement difficult and even breathing a task. In vain, she tried to change her thoughts. In vain, she tried to follow her husband in fancy over the snow-covered roads and onto the gorge of the mountains. Imagination failed her at this point. Do what she would, all was misty in her mind's eye and she could not see the wandering image. There was blankness between his form and her, and no life or movement anywhere but here in the scene of her terror. 
Her eyes were on a strip of rug that covered the entry floor, and so strange was the condition of her mind that she found herself mechanically counting the tassels that finished its edge, growing wroth over one that was worn till she hated the sixth tassel and mentally determined that if she ever outlived this night, she would strip them all off and be done with them. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, that tassel's disgusting. I hate it so much. If I live... I'm, I'm going to burn that gonna rug. going to burn every tassel in the world. <laughs> I hate all the rug tassels. The wind had lessened and the air had grown cooler and the snow made a sharp sound where it struck the panes. She felt it falling, though she had cut off all view of it. It seemed to her that a pall was settling over the world and that she would soon be smothered under its folds. Meanwhile, no sound came from the kitchen only that dreadful sense of doom creeping upon her, a sense that grew in intensity till she found herself watching for the shadow of that lifted stick on the wall of the entry and almost imagined she saw the tip of it appearing, not just the tip, (laughs) that she saw the tip of it appearing when within any premonition, the fatal side door blew in and admitted another man of so threatening an aspect that she succumbed instantly before him and forgot all her former fears in this new terror. Okay, so this one guy's now disappeared into the kitchen with a stick. She hasn't heard from him in a while. So he's just standing in the kitchen with a stick. Showing off the tip. Just showing his tip. Well, she thinks he's going to show just the tip. She's, she's imagining just the tip, but uh, she hasn't seen it yet. And now someone else has come in through the door that she did not lock again. So she's afraid of one guy's tip and another guy just bangs his way in. Bangs his way in and she succumbs. (laughs) Okay. The second intruder was a black man of powerful frame and lowering aspect. And as he came forward and stood in the doorway, there was observable in his fierce and desperate countenance no attempt at the insinuation of the other, only a fearful resolution that made her feel like a puppet before him and drove her almost without her volition to her knees. Money? Is it money you want? Was her desperate greeting. (laughs) Jesus Christ. If so, here are my purse, and here are my rings, and my watch, and just take them and go. (laughs) Oh, she's a delicate flower. She really is. But the stolid wretch did not even stretch out his hands. His eyes went beyond her, and mingled anxiety and resolution which he displayed would have cowed a stouter heart than that of this poor woman. Keep the trash, he growled. I want the company's money. You've got it. Two thousand dollars. Show me where it is. That's all. And I won't trouble you long after I close on it. But it's not in the house, she cried. I I swear it's not in the house. Do you think Mr. Chivers would leave me here alone with two thousand dollars to guard? But the black man, swearing that she lied, leaped into the room and tearing open the cupboard above her husband's desk, seized the bag from the corner where they had put it. He grabbed the booty. He he went straight for the booty. Yep. He brought it in this, he muttered and tried to force the bag open. But finding this impossible, he took out a heavy knife and cut a big hole in its side. 
Instantly, there fell out a pile of old receipts with which they had stuffed it, and seeing these, he stamped with rage, and flinging them in one great handful at her, rushed to the drawers below, emptied them, and finding nothing, attacked the bookcase. The money is somewhere here. You can't fool me, he yelled. I saw the spots your eyes lit on when I first came in the room. Is it behind these books? He growled, pulling them out and throwing them helter-skelter over the floor. Women is smart and hide in business. Is it behind these books, I say? They had been, or rather had been placed between the books, but she had taken them away, as we know, and he soon began to realize that his search was bringing him nothing. For leaving the bookcase, he gave the books one kick and seized her by the arm, shook her with a murderous glare on his strange and distorted features. "'Where's the money?' he hissed. "'Tell me or you're a goner!' "'Oh, no.' He raised his heavy fist. She crouched and all seemed over when, with a rush and cry, a figure dashed between them and he fell, struck down by the very stick she had so long been expecting to see fall upon her own head. The man, who had been her terror for hours, had, at the moment of need, acted as her protector." He stuck him with the tip. She must have fainted, but if so, her unconsciousness was but momentary, for when she again recognized her surroundings, she found the tramp still standing over her adversary. I hope you don't mind, ma'am, he said, with an air of humbleness she certainly had not seen in him before, but I think the man's dead. And he stirred with his foot the heavy figure before him. Oh, no, 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 no she cried. That would be too fearful. He, he's shocked, stunned. You can't have killed him. But the tramp was persistent. I'm afraid I have, he said. I done it before. <laughs> oh, shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, no, so it he's is Bill dead. Sykes. It is Bill I, Sykes. I kill, well, no, I kill this guy like twice a week. It's the same guy every time. I know oh, how he dies. They're a team. They're a team. I done it before, and it's been the same every time. But I couldn't see a man frighten a lady like you. My supper was too warm in me, ma'am. Shall I throw him right outside the house? Just toss him out into the snow. Toss him in the snow. Yes, she said. And then, oh, no, no, let us first be sure that there's no life in him. And hardly knowing what she did, she stooped down and peered into the glassy eyes of the prostrate man. The prostate man. Yeah, she peered into his glassy <laughs> prostate. <laughs> That's not how you tell if he's dead, honey. I mean, you could probably tell something. You probably tell something. I think you'd need some more tools. <laughs> you'd, there'd definitely be some spreading. Some, you can use the big stick that she likes the yeah. tip of. Yeah. Just poke it in there. Suddenly, she turned Sir, pale. would you mind using your big stick to check this man's glassy <laughs> prostate? Suddenly, she turned pale. No. Not pale, but ghastly, and cowering back stood so that the tramp, into whose features a certain refinement had passed since he had acted as her protector, thought she had discovered life in those set orbs, and was stooped down to make sure that this was so, when he saw her suddenly lean forward and, impetuously plunging her hand into the black man's throat, teared open the shirt and give one look at his bared breast. It was white. Motherfucker. <laughs> this is 
So there's someone in blackface now. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, 1894. You know, you, you know who put on blackface. It's her husband. It has to have been, right? Oh, God. Oh, God. She moaned. And lifting the head in her two hands, she gave the motionless features a long and searching look. Water, she cried. Bring water. But before the now obedient tramp could respond, she had torn off the woolly wig disfiguring the dead man's head and seeing the blonde curls beneath had uttered such a shriek that it rose above the gale and was heard by her distant neighbors. It was the head and hair of her husband. Yeah. What a fucking dick. Oh, I'm so glad he's dead. (laughs) I didn't like him from the beginning. You didn't like him so. from the beginning. He was a little shady right from the top. I'm glad he's dead. That's this, cool. This level of douchiness surprises this me. Lev- this level of like, ew. Just like, what the fuck, dude? And thank God for the... The, the, uh, the, the obedient the, tramp. The obedient tramp. <laughs> they found out afterwards that he had... So do we think the name of this episode is just the tip or the obedient tramp? I think it's the obedient tramp. Maybe. Or possibly stones and rods. Stones and rods. Just don't make it. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. (laughs) It don't matter if you're black or white. I can't decide if that's really funny or... Or really off color. Really kind of... (laughs) Off color for this story. Unfortunate, yeah. Oh, you know... They found out afterwards that he had contemplated this theft for months, that each and every precaution possible to a successful issue to this most daring undertaking had been made use of, and that but for the unexpected presence in the house of the tramp, he would doubtless have not only extorted the money from his wife, but have so covered up the deed by a plausible alibi as to have retained her confidence and that of his employers. Whether the tramp killed him out of sympathy for the defenseless woman or in rage at being disappointed in his own plans has never been determined. Mrs. Chivers herself thinks he was actuated by a rude sort of gratitude. The end. Wow. Maybe the episode title is A Rude Sort of Gratitude. A Rude Sort of Gratitude. It rhymes. Yeah, I like rude it. Rude sort of gratitude. A rude sort of gratitude. Um, that took a twist that I was not ready for. That went a whole lot of places. Did not expect um uh blackface to enter the equation. Yeah. On this Christmas Eve, no. alone in this house. What a weird Christmas story. W- yeah. What? <laughs> what a weird Christmas. Like, story. like this is a fucked up Christmas Carol. I like to think she wasn't haunted by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. She was haunted by. The blackface husband of douchebaggery, and uh, and the uh, the the tramp, and the obedient and the tramp obedient of rude tramp gratitude, of rude gratitude. <laughs> wow, Anna Catherine Green was like asked if she, she like, hey Anna, can you write a Christmas story? And she goes, I got a doozy for you. <laughs> I got you a Christmas story right here, I'll bitches. I'll show you a Christmas story. This happened got- to me last year. I got your Christmas story. Right here. Just as a tip. Cheap. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Midnight in Beauchamp Row, y'all. 
That, um, wow. <laughs> First of all, she writes wonder, in very long sentences. And second of all, that was a big old twist. That was, that was a good one. Like, I kept waiting. I'm like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then I did not see that coming. Nope. <laughs> nope. That, that last twist, I, I will admit, surprised me. Like, I assumed that the husband had something to do with it. But I didn't think he'd be there. It, like, that, that twist got me. Yeah. Well done. Well, I was just expecting more and more people to keep breaking into the <laughs> I was like, is this going to become like a like clown a car of like. Inverse clown inverse car. Inverse clown car. When the, and How many like, people can we squeeze into the. The money's oh. not in the house. The money's not in the house. And, and she just, just keeps, she keeps hiding them in different places. Like. No, I think it's funny. She just leaves the money like sitting at the doorstep outside the house. But no, it's covered but in I mean snow. the, the intruders, like oh. every time someone comes in, there's an intruder in the pantry, an intruder in the kitchen, an intruder in the, the, the upstairs bedroom, an intruder in the closet, there, like, an intruder in the fireplace. And, and she's just sitting there staring at tassels going, I hate this tassel. I want to burn it. So listener, do you hate tassels? <laughs> Booby tassels or rug tassels or, um, uh. What other tassels are there? There's more tassels. Like lamp tassels. Um, you could put tassels on like coats instead oh, of a fringe. Yeah, or like tassels on a bike handles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what are your favorite tassels? All right. So, listener, this week I want you to write in to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media. Just look for Campfire Classics Podcast. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell us what you thought of that story. Do you want to hear more from Anna Catherine Green? I want you to tell us what your favorite place to put tassels is. Yeah. And I want you to uh, include this week's secret passcode, Rods and Stones. Rods and Stones, baby. Um. Yeah, your favorite place to put a tassel and maybe one place that you would never put a tassel. <laughs> my head went my head went to the wrong place. <laughs> I think your head went to the right place. Or did it? <laughs> your head went to a place. It went to a place. Don't judge it. I'm I don't I try It's not just to. wherever your head went. It's wherever my head and went. And wherever your head went, listener, please let us know. Yeah, we we want to hear how how delightful y'all are, too. <laughs> uh, I have nothing left in me. Do you have anything else to share before the end of I this episode? I have nothing left in me, and I have, like, uh, two more sips of this delicious bourbon. So All right. Cheers to, cheers to the night. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, with cheers and uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your show. Try that all again so you don't have to edit my shenanigans. Shenanigans? <laughs> yeah, I, I said it like that on purpose. I like hey, nani, nani. Hey, nani, 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 no. Shenanigans. Shenani, nani, gins. Shenani, nani. <laughs> we have gone off the rails and it's delightful. This is what happens when we both drink bourbon. Bourbon is our friend.